Welcome back to another episode of Doubler's Podcast. My guest this week is Alex Ozelins. Alex is a French horn player, freelancer here in New York City, a customer success specialist for NAC, a software company, and he is also my partner of the last eight years. Um, Alex also deserves a shout out as the creator of the intro and outro music that I use here on the podcast, and he's got a lot of really great things to say. So without further ado, here's Alex Ozelins. Okay, so is this the official start of our podcast now? Yes, this is the official start of our podcast now. All right. Well, we live in the same house, actually, but ironically, we're not in the same room. And uh, the reason for that is not because we hate each other, but because we're so used to being on webcam, I guess, at this point of of our uh, corona quarantine. And logistically, we have the setup as is. So that's the story we're telling, I suppose. That's the story we're going to stick to. I like that. So can we can we start by um, can you share with the listeners what your background is, where you live right now, where our house is, and some little a little bit more about the things that you studied in school and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Um, so this is a little weird because obviously you know the answer to all these questions, but I guess for the sake of your listeners, I'll I'll, I'll give a recap. Um, I'm from New Jersey originally. I went to uh, state school for my undergraduate uh, studying music education. Uh, That was at the um, College of New Jersey. It used to be called Trenton State College. And I guess what I was sold by my teachers and parents uh, at that point was um, you can go, you can do a music ed degree and um, at at an easy place to go, cheap school. And then when you study with your master's, then we can decide exactly uh, what you'd like to do in the future. Um, and I think that was a good plan at the time. I don't think I, I don't think I thought at all about the ramifications of actually being a band director. When someone said you get to study music ed, I don't think that actually crossed my mind until my senior year in college, ironically, you know, when I did actual student teaching. Um, and I think that's true. I think for a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of Kids, I'll call them nowadays in college because it's, you know, it's not like it was 30 years ago where people were fully decided what type of life they'd want to live at, uh, you know, at age 18 when they exited high school. So, um, so yeah, my senior year going into student teaching, um, I ultimately decided that I didn't love teaching on that level. I actually do love teaching on an individual level. I love Mm -hmm. uh, private teaching. I love music teaching privately. But it was, uh, I think, quite stressful for me to uh, teach in front of a full uh, classroom full of of students and on a full Mm -hmm. classroom schedule. It was just much more stressful for me, I decided, than than actually uh, sitting on stage playing or performing. That was less stressful to me, which is... I've been told by many people that it's usually the opposite. They're, they're right. Usually people are not intimidated by a room full of kids, but I guess I am. I get um, it. So uh, at that, yeah, right. So at that point, I guess, uh, trying to remember who, maybe it was my undergraduate teacher, uh, Kathy Mertens, my private uh, horn teacher. I am a French hornist. You see a horn there, as Aaron is. We uh, both have horns in our room. <laughs> and I guess it was her that suggested to me maybe I could go into performance and maybe I should try uh, applying to some conservatories for uh, post uh, post college for graduate work. 
And so I did. I applied to a bunch of schools. Uh, I didn't get into all of them. I uh, didn't get into Juilliard. Didn't get into Curtis. Um, got waitlisted at Northwestern. Um, got into Manhattan School of Music. And so I ended up going there and studying in the uh, orchestral performance department. And... Um, yeah, so that was that was my complete schooling. Uh, do you want more than that, or do you want me to take you further in, in the timeline, or, or what? Sure. Well, grad school ended, what, 15 years ago? So we might as well get a brief fill in the gap between then and now. Well, it feels like yesterday. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> yeah, um, I guess after grad school, um, I had I think I had a lot of intentions of taking auditions and, and kind of winning an orchestra job. And I think that's true for many people. Um, Luckily or unluckily, I was pretty busy uh, right off the bat uh, in New York City. Um, I stayed, I think I stayed in New York City for a while. I can't remember if I stayed in New York City immediately or if I moved home with my parents and then moved back later. But regardless, I was pretty busy uh, right off the bat. I had um, some friends that were playing on Broadway. And so I ended up doing um, subbing for them. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, I guess anyone who's a freelance musician knows that the name of the game when you're, uh, when you're a sub, at least in the beginning is availability. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I took, I think every opportunity that I could to be as available as possible. And so I worked a lot, especially in those first, uh, I would say 10 years, I was really, really quite busy and, you know, it's easy when, Um, you're busy to kind of let time fly Mm -hmm. and, you know, truth be told, being busy is a good thing. But I think along the way, I, I, uh, maybe lost a lot of opportunity that I had originally, uh, thought about for auditions. And, you know, it's funny, you you schedule an audition and of course no one ever feels as prepared as they want to feel. And at the last minute, someone calls you and says, Hey, um, you know, I know you've got an audition scheduled, but can you cover an entire week for me? You're going to make a thousand bucks. And if you can do the whole week, I've got something for you next week too. And I never said no to that you right. know, for, for better or worse. I never said no to that. So, um, you know, you blink and you're here 10 years later. And, and right. so uh, I think it, I, it probably wasn't. And so, yeah, so I did a lot of work on Broadway, a lot of work with regional orchestras, um, I did some music festivals. I did some touring, uh, went to uh, Switzerland with Verbier, went to Mexico with a um, Philharmonic Orchestra of the Americas, which was a short-lived thing that we had here in the city. Um, really had quite a nice time and, and was quite busy. Um, I don't think it was till maybe about five years ago that I started thinking about kind of the trajectory of, of where I wanted to be because I, you know, I'd kind of realized that um, I had lost the opportunity to take auditions when I was really primed for them. Mm. And, um, at a, it's, it's really easy when you're, when you're out of school and you're in, in great shape to kind of go there. It becomes harder the older you get. I mean, I know we, we all feel that it becomes harder the older you get to, right. to kind of get yourself back in that shape and in that, in that headspace. Yeah. Um, so how old were you yeah, when so you started I, to so feel really that way? Started, I think it was around 2012. Um, so that was maybe about, okay, so that's maybe even longer than we thought. So maybe about eight years ago. And there was a, I think there was an event that preceded that. Um, if you remember, I broke my arm in a cycling accident. Mm-hmm. I think we had just started dating. That was 2015, but yeah. So you're, you were right about the five years. 
Okay, that was 2015. Yeah. Okay, so it wasn't as long ago as I thought. Um, so yeah, around 2015, I broke my arm in a uh, in a cycling accident, and prior to that, I was playing um, almost every night at Les Miserables. I was, I was really really busy there, and so it was kind of an inopportune inopportune time to break my arm because I was uh, there was a few opportunities I had there to actually take the gig. Um, and, and that obviously didn't work out because, uh, it was my left arm that I broke, so I couldn't hold the horn. Mm-hmm. And there were other reasons too. It's, it's, you know, it's, I'm not going to blame that, uh, just, you know, as a, as a single, as a single cause for right. not getting the job there. But it but sure didn't help. It, it, yeah. Not being able to play the horn sure didn't help. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I never actually had that job there. I was a long-term sub there, but I was playing almost every night. The people who were engaged there were, were very busy. And so I had four months, you know, where I couldn't play. And uh, the signaling that I got from everyone was that I'd, I'd be needed right... As soon as I could play again, I'd be needed right away. So I did, my, I did my absolute best to kind of stay in shape while I was down and out, which I think in retrospect was a mistake. Um, you know, I, I, there was a whole bunch of things I did. I did a lot of, like, mouthpiece buzzing at the time to try to stay in shape. I think I played. I actually played this thing a fair amount. Yeah, um, your natural horn and the valves. Yeah. Yeah, and actually because I because I, I obviously couldn't use my left hand, mm-hmm. I ended up holding it like this. Right, with the opposite hand. And just kind of playing it like this with one arm, which. Well, and was, you had the right-handed horn that someone sent you. Right. Actually, no. I went to Dylan Music, and they felt so bad <laughs> walking in with a cast, and I was like, I don't, I can't play, and they felt so bad for me that they ended up giving me this right-handed mellophone. Um, but okay, for better or worse, I, I practiced a lot during that time. And, um, as soon as I was able to play again, went right back into working at Les Mis and actually didn't have a great time. Um, my playing had changed a bit in the interim, maybe from being out of shape, maybe from something shifting in the way I played because my arm was in a different position or I changed the way I played or something. But, um, I think one of the things that I plan to highlight for your listeners or make them aware of was that, you know, I had a a limited amount of disability that I I did collect Mm -hmm. from uh, the theaters. Um, And, you know, when I was able to work again, I needed to make money and I really didn't have any other options. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here was someone was saying, hey, we still need you at the show. We need you to play the whole time. I figured, great. And I think my first week back at Les Mis, I played, I think I played all eight shows that week. I think you did. Yeah. And <laughs> it did not go well. Mm-mm. I was, I was super out of shape and it, it continued to not go well. And, you know, in retrospect, I wish I had had the, um, I wish I had had the opportunity in my mind to do something else and to, and to, and to be able to say, Hey, I'm really not ready to work that much yet Yeah, because things need to readjust or, or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I think that was one of the precipitating things or one of the big precipitating things that, that kind of led me to think about uh, what other directions I could go in. Um, that was one thing. Yeah. Another thing was, uh, you know, thinking about and, and, you know, being on the freelance scene for um, a certain amount of time, you see your friends, you see what directions they go in. You know, you see the people who are super superstars go off and get jobs. Uh, you see other people that that do really well, but you also see a lot of people that um, make a lot of sacrifices, personal sacrifices, to actually work in the music business. 
And I started thinking about that and started seeing that in my friends, you know, people making either financial sacrifices um, to their, uh, not their cost of living, their, their, the level they were living mm-hmm. at, you know, being, being willing to live at a certain level. Um, just to maintain, you know, their, their status as a musician, right. uh, social, sa- social sacrifices as well, financial sacrifices, familial sacrifices, you know, people, people seeing people who were staying single for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, or having to date other musicians, uh, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah, but that, that was another kind of precipitating thing that got me thinking about, um, what other directions I can go in. Yeah. Um, I mean, also, I think uh, Broadway changed over time. The music scene in general in New York changed over time. The hiring practices changed over time. Uh, that's maybe something I, I don't want to go into. But uh, to put it in a simple way, it was a very different space when I started. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a space where if you put in your time, if you subbed for a long enough time, if you did a good enough job, um, you would eventually be hired. You would eventually get your own show. And I saw that happening less and less over time and um, people getting hired that didn't have a longstanding background. And there's nothing wrong with that. And and great, great for them for getting hired. Right. But that Um, doesn't give you much security. Right. That didn't give me much security as someone who'd been on the scene, you know, a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the final thing that was a precipitating factor for me thinking about other careers was... um, it, ten, I, I guess I would say 10 years ago, it was very important for me to be the absolute best French horn player in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think everyone feels, everyone who's a musician feels like that at, at some point. They feel like it's absolutely possible. They feel like if they practice enough, they can, you know, the, the, the world is open to them. They can, they can achieve whatever. And that's a great attitude, actually. But at a certain point and or at a certain age, everyone may or may not realize that um, it's no longer important for them to be the best. Maybe at a certain point, it's it's just important for them to be good enough, mm-hmm. you know, to not, you know, make a fool of yourself on stage or something like that. Right. <laughs> and or, um, yeah, I would say it's it, it your priorities shift in that way. It becomes it becomes okay, and it also becomes uh, it's not a tenable uh, solution anymore. Uh, there's absolutely no way at age 39 that I'm going to become the best French horn player in the world at this point. So at a, at a certain point you realize that as well. Yeah. And there's nothing, there's nothing in those realizations that means that I can't still play and play at a very high level. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I still try to. So I guess that's the full history that takes me, takes us up to kind of starting to think about other careers. Yeah. So it sounds like, the thought process began maybe five years ago. So can you describe a little bit of how you went from, you know, breaking your arm, thinking to yourself, you know, maybe I'd like to have something else in my back pocket. So then I could have been in a, you know, more advantageous situation. I wouldn't have needed to work so much um, as far as taking shows maybe before I was ready. Um, Can you sort of walk through how you got from that point to where you are now, where you're, almost a year into having a career in tech. Yeah. Um, well, I think concurrent with my 
I think I should highlight the fact that concurrent to my entire working history as a musician, there is also a soft kind of history for me in tech. Mm -hmm. And uh, that soft history began as just, you know, personal interest. Um, I love technology. You know, I always had the latest tech. I always just liked using it in my in my personal life. Mm -hmm. um, well, and you had a lot of I, early exposure, right? Yeah, I had a lot of early exposure. I, yeah, right, exactly. Well, I guess my father brought home a computer uh, in the 80s, and I had a computer in my house when many, when pretty much everyone else didn't. Right. So we had a very a computer very early on. I don't know who he convinced over there that it was necessary for him to have one at home, but regardless, we got one at home. And so, I, yeah, I had a lot of early exposure there. Got some early program exposure, programming exposure uh, using, you know, things like Quick Basic was, you know, really made myself familiar in DOS. Um, did some early, uh, I think that there, yeah, right, there was some early like MIDI keyboards that I had. So I did some early composition and things like that. And so there's there's kind of a longstanding history for me, kind of just being involved in tech in that way. Um, I'm also very, I've also always very, very much been interested in data. Um, I'm, you know, ironically, I'm kind of a minimalist in my personal life as far as personal possessions. I don't like to have a lot of things and I, I like to, I like to keep the amount of things I have kind of compartmentalized, the things I have compartmentalized mm -hmm. and, uh, but that's not true for me digitally. I think digitally I'm kind of a hoarder and I've always been a hoarder. So I've always been interested in, in data and the amalgamation of data and, uh, you know, for the for for all the things that I don't have, um, you know, as personal possessions, there's there's a lot of hard drives that accumulated over the years. Right. There's there's you know I still have files with date stamps from the 80s in them, just because they're you know things that I've kept. Mm -hmm. And so there there was that interest the whole time. And and the way that manifested itself in my in my working life was that you know eventually I became known. I think, especially around my musician colleagues and friends as one of those people who could solve problems, right. technical problems. And so constantly I'd have people, you know, come to me and say, uh, Hey, like this doesn't work. Can you tell me what this, what to do, or this doesn't work. Can you tell me what to do? Or, um, Hey, I gotta, I got, have to buy something. I've got to buy a computer. I've got to buy a phone. Can you like, give me, you know, give me a 45 minute breakdown on the pros and cons of these different things. Right. And I, I'd have that at the top of my head just because I'd have thought about it for myself. Right. Um, and so, you know, you, you become known as one of those kind of nerdy people who can, who, who has those interests. And um, a French horn player is known as a nerd. Uh, yeah. Right. Unbelievable. Big, big surprise. Big surprise. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, at certain points in time, I tried to monetize that for myself, but never really seriously. You know, I had a um, a business for a little bit, building computers for people, I, and 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 doing kind of tech support calls for people, and you know, the, always the conversation would be like, "Well, you know, how much do I owe you?" And it would always be like, "Oh, well, you know, give me a few hundred bucks, or just give me the cost for the parts." You know, I was just yeah. happy to be doing stuff, and of course, you know, it's it's any any publicity is good publicity. So any time that you spend, you know, with people solving their technical problems was and does translate to you being at the top of their head when it comes time when it comes time for thinking about who to hire for a gig. Yeah. So 
for me, I thought that was that was enough, mm-hmm. and so you know, it was never it was never a money thing, and and if, it becomes uncomfortable too because most of the people you're dealing with uh, were, or most of the people I was dealing with were my friends and colleagues, right? And so there's always that that fine line is 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 really difficult. So right. it's a lot different than working under the rubric of a, you know some corporate structure where you know you provide a service and you get paid. That's mm-hmm. it, right? Um, so. Yeah, so there was that the entire time. Now, um, about two years ago, I started thinking more. And this was actually after you got hired with Zapier. Well, how long have you been with Zapier? Is it over two years now? Two years and two weeks. Yeah. So as soon as you got hired with Zapier, I think maybe a few months in, we both started thinking about this more seriously. Mm-hmm. And that kind of aligned with more people... Um, contacting me and needing help for things. And I think especially when COVID hit, you know, there was a certain point where I was getting six, seven, eight phone calls a day. Right. Because people were technologically, they were stranded and they were technologically now in a place where they had to rely much more on, on these things that they had always, they kind of pushed to the periphery up until then. But now all of a sudden, you know, there's tons of people, tons of musicians and people emailing them and saying, yeah, I'll pay you to do something. Upload this file to Dropbox. Do this, do this, get this, you know, give me a separate well, audio file, video file, and, and all these technological. Yeah, and yeah, Zoom so teaching. And I remember that was a yeah, popular one. Zoom, yeah, video conferencing, right. everything. So at the start of COVID, immediately I was getting just so many inquiries from people. And, uh, of course, I'm happy to help all my friends and colleagues along the way. But at a certain point, you know, I would start the day, I'd be talking to people all day and I'd look at the clock and it would be 11 PM at night. So Mm -hmm. at a certain point I said, this is just kind of getting ridiculous. So, um, hoping, hoping that people would, would leave me alone. I, I just flat out started telling, I started emailing people and I started telling people over the phone, Hey, sorry, I'm really busy. I'm getting, I'm getting too many inquiries for this type of, uh, consultation, uh, I'm going to just have to start charging people $40 an hour Mm -hmm. with a minimum, with a $40 minimum for my time, you know, fully expecting people to say, yeah, okay, great. And hang up the phone and not call me because that's what I was going for. And so I guess much to my, uh, disappointment (laughs) slash delight slash chagrin, I I really don't know how to, to put this, but uh, everyone, there was no one that said, okay, and hung up the phone. Everyone said, yeah, absolutely. I don't care. Please take my money. I need your help. I've got to get this uploaded. I've got to get mm-hmm. this video conferencing working. I got to get Jam Kazam working. You know, like all right. these things um, came in at once. So, you know, at that point, I really started thinking to myself, well, you know, this is really hard to do just with friends and colleagues. Um, so, I, we might as well just start looking for a, um, I guess, a corporate solution or a full time solution. Yeah. You were already in remote work. So uh, it was at that point, I guess, that we that we both together started brainstorming more about which direction I could go in. Mm-hmm. So I hope that answers that question. Yeah. So um, so yeah. So let's talk about what that looked like for you. So what was the process like? Um, you know, getting because you got your first tech job in COVID. What what was that like? Um. Well, it was a lot of. Uh, you, you know, it's interesting when you come. If, when you come from a place where you don't have any experience in an industry, any hard experience mm-hmm. in an industry at all, 
but you also know that you're qualified to do, to do the job, right? right? Because you know, you see, you, you'll interact with people uh, on a daily basis in the tech world, and you'll say, and you'll think to yourself, like, "Wow, this is your job," but I actually know more than you about this, <laughs> right? So maybe, maybe I could do this, and and you know, so it's an interesting position to be in because you don't have anything on your resume to reflect that. So you know, you get creative, and and you get creative with your resume. You know, I'm really, I, I haven't been a social media person for a long time because uh, I, I just, I, I don't work well with Facebook. I don't work well with Instagram personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't never had a LinkedIn. So, and I think it was you that said, you have to have a LinkedIn. Yeah. You're going to have to. So I relented on the LinkedIn. I made the LinkedIn, you know, and we started filling in details and kind of come up with creative ways to, and I wouldn't say lie because none of it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. But creative ways to build a resume, which, which kind of unlocked things that were already true, but I had never actually put into a, um, into one compartmentalized space to say like, hey, I did this or I can do this. Right. But you know, things that are obvious, just just bullet points that it's like, okay, what's a bullet point? You know, that I've never had on my resume that now I can put on my resume, and it has to do with tech in some way. Okay. Well, I can use Pro Tools. All right. You know, I've done, I do audio editing and mixing. I've done that for a long time. Pro Tools. All right. That's a bullet point for the resume. So uh, the process was a lot of kind of that creative finding of things that were already true, you know, but that, you know, had just never occurred to me that that could be contributive to, uh, you know, the, the, the whole tech space. So that's kind of how the process started was forming a resume, forming LinkedIn, and then actually looking, starting to look at um, job boards. And you mm-hmm. had a few that you suggested. And, uh, you know, looking on LinkedIn, using the filters there, kind of finding, you know, what's out there. Yeah. Um, of course, it's, it, it's, it's a jungle when you first start because everything just looks like, you know, it, it just all looks Greek. And there's all these buzzwords that you don't know what they mean. And that's fine because, you you know, you learn later on that the people who wrote the, the listing, they don't know what it means. Right. Either. It's just a buzzword and they don't know what it's it means. Just, right. It's just a yeah. buzzword. But touching back on what you said about, um, you know, taking things that you never thought about putting into bullet point form. Um, I think that that happens to a lot of musicians because I think a lot of musicians don't realize that the skills that they have as a freelancer Really, when you put them all together and put them on a piece of paper, you ended up with a stronger resume than I think you expected. Right. Yeah. That's, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, I think that the point is being a musician already affords you a lot of skill sets that are useful in today's general job market that you don't consider as, you know, you don't consider them skill sets because you, you think, well, that's just... That's normal for being a musician. Right, it's you know, baseline. I, I to be able, it's baseline. You know, mm-hmm. so you, you think, well, okay, that's not that interesting. But in terms of employers, that is interesting. They want to know these things about you. So, um, you know, you have to you have to be willing to bring things that you didn't think were important about yourself to the forefront and push all of that push all of that music stuff. You know, this is the thing: is I t- I talked to a few recruiters. I know you connected me with one of the recruiters at Zapier. Uh, I talked to someone else. I talked to a friend of mine um, who looked at my resume. And, you know, I think a lot of musicians, they they know that they've done pretty cool things as a musician, but it becomes hard for them to um, understand that 
people outside of the music world generally uh, they're not going to know what these things mean mm-hmm. n- nor are they going to care nor are they going to understand how to relate to it you know so, right you know while i might think it's a cool resume point that i've you know played 15 20 different broadway shows you know someone who's hiring for some kind of tech position it, it's just not relevant so you kind of have right. to be willing to to, to just, I wouldn't say flush those things, but, you know, I had a resume full of music things, and finally I think we just decided to squash it down to, like, three lines, which was like, right. hi, I was a musician, and I, I, I did some, you know, pretty high-stress things, but here it exists at the bottom of my resume. And so that's, right. that's kind of a tough pill to swallow, I think, for for many musicians because yeah. they, you know, they feel like they're kind of flushing that whole part of their history. Well, you're boiling 15 years of work into three lines. And then you're filling the rest of it with things that you never thought were that important. So yeah, it is a little bit of a, it's a, it's a mindset shift. Um, sure. Not realizing like, <clears throat> not realizing that, uh, that some of the skills that you, yeah, like you said, just, you just take for granted. You assume that there's their baseline um, are actually going to be something that an employer cares about. But yeah, I mean, so what is, um, what was your experience like interviewing um what did people, recruiters, these people that you talked to, was being a musician a disadvantage in those conversations? Were there questions of like, well, how are, you know, you're 39 years old, 38 years old. How are you going to move into this new industry? Like, what was the attitude there? Um, well, first of all, I don't think anyone's, I don't think I put my age on my resume. So um, that's fair. I, I don't, right. So I don't think anyone, you know, maybe someone thought in the back of their head, well, he's got gray in his beard. So. <laughs> right. He's, he's not, he's not a spring chicken, but, um, I, I, there was, let's put it this way. Every recruiter I talked to highlighted the fact, you know, no matter how far I push that music stuff down in my resume. And I think this is a sign of a good recruiter. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a musician and they were talking to me is they, the recruiters that I talked to, the people, you know, in the, in the interviews that I did, they all were really interested in the fact that I was a musician mm-hmm. and they, they, they wanted to highlight that action. They wanted to know, you know, what I could bring, you know, what I experienced in the music world and how I can contribute, you know, based on, based on those things. So mm-hmm. the recruiters actually, I think any good recruiters is really smart uh, to, to highlight that or to look for people who are musicians. And I think there's a lot of people, especially in tech, a lot of recruiters that are, that are, you know, that are, that are looking at that and saying, okay, this is a person we need to take a closer look at because they know they're going to get a few things, you know, guaranteed as, um, from someone who's a musician, they're probably going to get someone who can talk to other people, Mm -hmm. regardless of whether they're an introvert or an extrovert. I'm probably an introvert and I'm not a great conversationalist, but I think I've been trained well enough, you know, in, in, in the industry to be able to, to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, recruiters are aware they're going to get that. They're aware they're going to get someone at least who has a, a, a baseline IQ level um, a, a, or a certain level of intelligence, I should say. Right. Um, because it, it, it does take some brain power to be a musician and to be one that's, you know, if, if you've actually been lucky, privileged enough to have made your living that way for any extended amount of time, that takes some brain power that takes some conscientiousness as well. Mm -hmm. And I think any good recruiter knows that they know that it's a, it's a tough world out there in the music world. So, 
Uh, yeah, so the recruiters I talked to were, were actually really interested. I didn't I didn't have one that was like, you know, okay, well, you know, tell me about something else. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So can you t- can you talk a little bit more now um, about your current job? Well, I didn't talk about my first job at all, so we. Should, oh right. I should I should probably tell you how I got how I got there? Sure. Because um, I, I I think it is important to highlight that, you know, not every job that. You know, someone who's making a career shift will get will be their dream job right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I guess the first job I ended up getting was at uh, it was um, as a support agent for software for it was behavioral health software. So basically, the software that your psychiatrist or psychologist would be running in their office mm-hmm. um, and all, all encompassing kind of uh, software package handling the, uh, the diagnosis, the billing, the charting of patients, um, prescribing of medication, scheduling of appointments, et cetera, et cetera. They have software that does this. Yeah. And uh, that was a good first job for me to have. Um, it was really, really high pressure. Uh, I mean, I guess we can say the company I was with, the company is called Ica Notes. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a support agent there for how long was it? It was about seven months. I think so. Okay. Yeah. And there I was doing phone support and email support and chat support. Right. All right. It was a really high pressure uh, environment. We had a lot, we had a really high volume of calls. Um, you know, basically I'd start the day and the phone would just ring all day. So I'd be on the phone all day. Um, you know, back and forth with users, uh, kind of going through their issues. Mm -hmm. Um, it didn't pay great, but it was a really good job to get my feet wet. And I think because the company was understaffed, because we we didn't have enough really support agents to be, to be covering the entire, uh, user spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, and especially we didn't have enough tier two agents to cover the entire spectrum. There was a lot of opportunity for people who were new, like me, to take on issues that were normally tier two issues. Can you explain a little bit what tier two means for people who aren't right. familiar? So uh, just as an example as a, of, a t- of a simple tier one issue, a tier one issue is someone calls in and says, hey, I can't log into the system because I forgot my password and I don't know how to reset <laughs> my password. That's like the quintessential tier one right. Um you know, and you'll, you know, as any, as any kind of tier one support agent, you know, if you're lucky enough or unlucky enough, you'll, you'll handle any number of those requests in a given day. And of course, the, it's the, the procedure is the same, you know, dear sir, madam, please navigate to this website, click the link that says forgot password. All right. Did you get an email? You can't check your email because you forgot your email password. All right. We'll take care of that now. You know, so you can go in all these directions, yeah. you know, cover the password, make sure the person can get logged into your system. All right? right. That's a tier one issue. Right. Uh, a tier two issue is someone calls in and says like, hey, um, you know, I don't think your software is working right. And I don't think it's because I don't know what I'm doing. And you say, OK, let's let's explore this. And so, you know, you you, you find a bug in the software mm-hmm. or something and the, the user has identified a bug that usually requires some type of ex, uh, um, escalation. Mm-hmm. So you're going to escalate. Usually you escalate that to a tier two agent who then, you know, if they, if they can handle it, they're able to handle it, or they may escalate that further to uh, engineering or development team. Right. Okay. So because we were so understaffed at our work, uh, there was, and because there simply weren't enough tier two agent agents, and there was a lot of tier two issues, if I can put it 
put it that way. Yeah. Um, there simply weren't enough agents to address those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, even as a beginner, I had a lot of opportunity to just take on those kind of issues right. because there was no one else for me to pass the call to, right. honestly. Um, so it was nerve wracking to say the least. And I definitely wasn't paid what I was worth, but it was also a really good experience because, um, I had, again, I had the opportunity to engage with a lot of those tier two issues. And, and so I think that was, uh, I got a lot of buzzwords under my belt, you know, during those seven months that I think helped me in, uh, my interview for my current position. Right. Yeah. So can you, can you talk a little bit how you're able to leverage that experience then into your, into your next job and more about what that job is? Sure. Um, so, yeah. So again, um, I mean, I, I guess we should highlight the fact that there's a few different ways you can go into tech, mm-hmm. a few different doors you can go into. Um, you entered with Zapier via customer support or customer success, they call it. No, um, we're support. Your support? Yeah. Okay. Some companies say customer yeah. support. Some companies say customer success. It's a language thing, mm-hmm. uh, semantic thing. Um, you can enter that way. You can enter via development. There's a lot of people doing boot camps now. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first job was in customer support. So this is, this is my entrance. And um, so I guess when I... You know, I knew pretty early on at my first job that that was a good entry point, but that wasn't, you know, that wasn't my arrival. That wasn't right. where I was going to stay for forever. Right. So um, started looking about five months in for another job. And I think it was you actually, was it you who found the ad for Mac? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think you sent me an email and said, hey, check out this company. They look really good. And so there was there was a few things I was looking for in a in a in a second job. One was um, a salary that was livable, or a starting salary that was livable. That, right. That was, you know, I've got to be honest and say that was the most important thing. Right. Um, the second thing was a, a healthier culture, uh, a company that was really seemed concerned about the kind of health and wellness, both physical and mental, of their employees. Mm-hmm. Um, the third thing was I was looking to support a product that I was really interested in. Right. And, you know, not that the, not that the first product I supported was uninteresting. I actually learned to appreciate it over time because it was a really interesting piece of software, but while I'm not a psychiatrist, but it's not something, it's not something I would use. Right. Yeah. You don't really have a use case for it. I don't have a use case for it. So, and, and, you know, and I actually love using software. And when I, you know, and there's, there's certain software that I, that I use daily and that I feel um, really passionate about. And so I wanted to see if there was a product I could find that I actually felt as passionate about that I would actually use myself. Mm-hmm. And so you sent me the email for this company, uh, NAC, it's K-N-A-C-K, and this is an online database um, software. So, so uh, software where users can, uh, end users can create um, customer faces or user-facing databases um, and kind of build them as a web app, okay? And mm-hmm. usually that's a really expensive thing because usually you have to hire a SQL engineer, you have to hire someone who knows JavaScript, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and right. it's a very, you need engineers. Uh, you need engineers. It's an expensive yeah. development process. And so um, NAC is filling that gap. It's a no, what they call a no-code solution. So, mm-hmm. you know, basically you log on to the web app, 
you know you want to build a database of something and you start clicking and you start dragging and dropping and you can launch the live app and you can launch it to your users. And immediately, you know, taking a look at that product, I, I figured, wow, you know, this is a really interesting product. I love data. I've got like seven use cases for this in my head immediately right. in the first five minutes. I said, I've got to, I've got to check out this company. And I think when we looked at the company together, we both could tell that this was a really uh, a company that had a really healthy culture to it. Yeah, as well. The culture piece was definitely there. Exactly. Yeah. And and you you know you can tell that from from the website. You can tell that looking about the people that that work there. And, and you so can tell by up, their process too. You know the amount of information that's available to a candidate. They had a really comprehensive you know set of information explaining oh, what the yeah. job was and all that. Yeah, there was a huge guide that, you know, when I submitted my first resume, they sent me a huge guide about, like, what's our hiring process like? What kind of company are we? Um, one thing that was in, one thing that's interesting about NAC is that they trial everyone that gets hired with them on, on a two-week trial mm-hmm. or as much as, a, as much as a one-month trial. Right. And so that's really difficult for some people because, uh, you know, an interview is, is um, nerve-wracking enough. Right. But being on trial is uh, can be just as nerve wracking. It's it's a more extended you know version of, of, of a nerve wracking process. You know, deciding you know these people are deciding whether they want to hire you, and you're hiring whether you want these people to hire you. But you know, they I think what was really nice is that they really put the emphasis on we want you to be sure that this is a place you want to work. Right. You know. And I, I think the fact of the matter is, is, is if you got to, the, if you get to the trial, or at least the way I felt is, if you get to the trial, you know, the job is yours to lose. But right. it's gonna, it's gonna become really clear over the next two weeks, you know, whether you actually want to work here because you're, you're gonna get, you know, the lay of the land in, in as, in as much detail as you can possibly get. Right. And so I, I went through that, I went through the trial process um, there. So that was, that was very different. Um, and, you know, this is, it's a rather small company. So, so, you know, you get to know a lot of people over those two weeks. Um, you know, even in a remote environment, even on Slack, there's a lot of FaceTime. You're on the webcam a lot. You're talking to a lot of people face-to-face. Lots going on in that first two weeks. So yeah. uh, that trial process was interesting. And at first, you know, I was kind of um, hesitant about it because I didn't really have the bandwidth to do that trial while I was working my first job. Mm-hmm. And I told the hi- I told my hiring manager that right off the bat. I said, and, and she was actually really sympathetic to that and, and, and really flexible. And she said, you know, if you want to just come in at night and work at night and we'll extend the trial a month, mm-hmm. you can, you know, you can get the lay of the land here and you can continue your full-time job at Iconotes right now. And I thought about that and I figured, well, you know, I just don't have the bandwidth. Yeah. And, and so what I said to her was, no, you know, I'm just going to um, put my two weeks in and I'll just do the trial. And if you guys hire me, that's great. If you don't, that's great. And, right. you know, hoping that that would, um, you know, give them some confidence in in my intentions mm-hmm. and hoping that it would give me some space to actually concentrate because there was so right. much stress going on. Um, that I, I really couldn't afford to work a full day and then come and work another job for another four hours a day. Yeah, that's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah, so it's almost like in that two-week trial, it was almost like, you know, getting a season trial in an orchestra or something. It's kind of the same idea. Yeah, it's it's a really same idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, when, when you get, when you, when you win an audition for an orchestra, 
Um, you know, hopefully no one's there hoping that you fail your tenure process. Right. You know? Hopefully. And if there is, there's something else going on. You know, you knew that person in the past and right. there's some bad blood. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's actually a really similar thing. You know, it's, it's, it's your, it's, it's your job to lose that at that point. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so, so thinking about, you know, going forward as things are opening up, um, cause you know, right Right now, obviously, the last year that you've been working, there hasn't really been much to balance just because the state of the world. Um, but going forward, like thinking about the balance of, of continuing in your job and then, you know, gigs starting to come back. Um, how do you envision that balance going forward? What does that look like for you? Well, you know, there's um, a few things that, that play into that. One is that remote work saves a lot of time. Okay. And, you know, commutes, commutes can really kill someone's day. Mm -hmm. So even as a musician, you know, I spent so many years driving into New York city and driving out. And, you know, that was of course me too, because I didn't want to live in the city. I like having a car, but commutes can really kill the day. So uh, I, I think one of the considerations is, is, you know, working at a remote company, it affords you a bit more time than working any other type of full-time job. Mm -hmm. because you won't have that commute getting in the way. So, right. you know, the other thing is that many remote companies are flexible. Mine certainly, NAC certainly is very flexible in that, you know, if I get about eight hours of work done in a day, that's great. I don't have to work that much if I don't want to. If I want to crank it out and do it in five hours, I can do it. If I want to shift my schedule, in other words, I can work, 11 to 7 if I want. I can work 7 to 3 if I want. I can work 8 to 4. I can work 8 to 12, take a break, practice my horn for an hour, mm -hmm. and then work another few hours and sign off at 5. There's a lot of flexibility built in. And um, I think, yeah, my company doesn't, doesn't have a... Um, doesn't have a, 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 a limit on the amount of, of uh, time off that you can take. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, you don't want to abuse that policy, right. but there's a fair amount of flexibility there. And, and, you know, seeing gigs starting to come around the corner, I've got a gig next month that I'm going to be playing a live broadcast. And so it's going to work just fine. I'll just work a little earlier that day. You know, I'll get in the car and I'll drive to the city for the night. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of flexibility built in. So uh, that's a good thing going forward. And I think a lot of it has to do with this being a remote job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way about mine. I don't think, you know, I think being remote is what makes it possible. Um, like you said, commutes takes, take up so much time and, you know, and if, and if you wanted to, you could take your, you know, you could take your laptop on a train or something and, sure. and keep working. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways that you can move it around. That is, that is really nice. Um, cool. So I guess, um, the second to last thing, cause we have a new, we have a new feature for this, uh, for this interview, but the second to last thing would be, um, do you have any advice for other musicians who might be considering, um, doing something like this and, and creating and having a secondary career in, in the tech world? Um, my advice is, <clears throat> I have a few pieces of advice. You know, one piece of advice is, don't bother if you're not interested in tech at all. Um, <laughs> I think you, I think you should have some level of interest, uh, general interest. But if, mm -hmm. if you find that you have 
interest that you haven't capitalized on. And if it was second nature to you and you really haven't thought about it in that way, you should definitely think about that. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that's an an important thing to keep in mind is that, is that people will have these skills and they'll, they'll know that they have these skills and that they've had them for a long time, but they wouldn't have ever thought about monetizing them. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as advice for getting into tech, you do not have to be a, uh, you do not have to go in as a um, as a developer. You do not have to go in as a coder. You do not have to spend, um, you know, twenty thousand dollars on a boot camp. You know, we both are going in via the success channel. You know, it's interesting. My company, my company's small enough where, uh, I mean, my title supposedly is a weekend success specialist. I actually work Thursday through Monday. So on Thursday and Monday and Thursday, Friday and Monday, I'm handling tickets. I'm doing uh, interactions with customers. Saturday and Sunday, I'm looking over the infrastructure of the company and making sure that there's no emergency requests that come in because we don't offer supports on weekends. But my point is that many of these companies, many tech companies uh, are not rigid about your role. And so... to give you an example, at my company in particular, it, it has a flat structure. So if someone takes ownership of some particular area of the company or if someone develops a skill set, they, uh, they can capitalize on that and they can go in that direction. Okay? And that's mm-hmm. certainly what I'm finding that I'm able to do. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm handling tickets for customers, but I'm also um, interested in going in certain directions. I'm learning about the API now. I'm learning about the infrastructure of the company and Amazon Web Services. I'm going to be taking some certifications there. So don't think that there's only one way to go into the tech industry and it's to become and, and it's to go in as an engineer. OK, because there's many different ways you can do that. And, and remember also that um, these companies, everyone is going to have to be trained on these products from the ground up. Mm-hmm. So these companies love to hire from within. So if you start as a support agent. And you get to know the, the, the software or the hardware or whatever you're dealing with. If you get to know that very well, you only have one direction to go in at the company, and that's up. Because in a lot of these cases, people are not going to want to hire people. You know, you, you can have 19 certifications in JavaScript and whatever, but if, if you don't know the product you're supporting, no one's going to want to hire you at level four unless you, you have kind of a, that, that, that continuity of, of knowing the product from the ground up. That's, that's one piece of advice I would give. Uh, another piece of advice, if you're interested in um, getting into development, getting into tech, learning more about computers, uh, is learn Linux. Um, there's Linux. I started learning Linux about two years ago um, just in my own uh, work environment and, and home environment because... I really enjoyed, uh, well, first of all, I got tired of paying Apple thousands of dollars every year just to have a functioning computer that could check my email. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but no, to be real, learning Linux is very, very useful. And you, and you, if you start using it at home and you start um, developing those skill sets, uh, those buzzwords come into, um, come into your periphery in the tech world very quickly. And there's many different directions you can go if you have that as a baseline. And, you know, the Linux, uh, the Linux community is really, a, a, it's, that's not a, that's, it's not a thing that exists, but the, I guess the open source community, the people that develop Linux 
Um, there's so much support out there, so much online documentation. This is really just something that you could learn on your own and you can kind of get to know. So, I, you know, I would say if you're interested, get to know Linux, get to know how documentation works, get to know how the development process works for software. That all can become apparent to you without, without ever touching a job. Mm-hmm. And if you have that baseline and if you have those buzzwords available to you, when you hit your first interview, those are things that are going to come in handy. And I think if I didn't start to, on a whim, learn Linux a few years before I started this process, I think I would have been much less equipped to, uh, to continue there. Yeah, it would have been more challenging without that knowledge. Sure. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, as our last thing, we're going to try something new. We're going to do some rapid fire questions. All right. So Sam gonna, Harris style. Sam Sounds Harris great. style. Three guesses who had this idea. The first two don't count. So, <laughs> so we're going to do six rapid fire questions. So number one, who is your favorite current artist in any genre? Cur- current artist. Oh, that's this. Well, it's going to change week by week. Mm-hmm. This week it's Sigrid um, because she popped up on my, on my YouTube uh, recommendations. Uh, who is Sigrid? Sigrid is a uh, Norwegian female artist who I think she's been around for a few years now, maybe three or four years. And she's just fantastic. And I, I, I'm really pissed that we don't get music, pop music this good in the U.S. And it's probably just because her name sounds too weird that she's not marketable, marketable enough to get on Z100 or whatever. But go look up Sigrid. She's really great. Great artist, uh, great producers, uh, great albums, just Really good. Really been enjoying that yeah. lately. And that, yeah, the live performance was really impressive. Yeah, too. great live performances. Yeah. Really, yeah. really, really excellent. Cool. Two, what is your favorite movie or TV show this week? <laughs> yeah, well, again, I mean, again, that changes every <laughs> week. Um, I think my favorite, I, I, okay, well, favorite movie or TV show? Well, I don't know. I've been watching a bunch. Of, I'm rewatching The Sopranos. I just started a few weeks ago, which is great because that all, it, it all happens around where I grew. It's like 15 minutes of where I grew up, which is in Verona, New Jersey. You know, it all happens in Montclair and Cedar Grove and Little Falls. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe my favorite movie of all time is Predator, which some people are going to really laugh at because <laughs> Predator was, um, you know, it's an alien movie and it's like a it's like a guy movie, but really. You know, for a movie that came out in the 80s, they don't make movies like that anymore. You know, the character development was fantastic. This is Arnold Schwarzenegger at his absolute best. Mm. Um, Good storyline. You know, actual decent movie. Uh, I really really dislike movies over the past 15 years in general. There's been very few movies that I love. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. That's, I would say that. I got to give a shout out to Cobra Kai too because I just finished watching Cobra Kai. I'm waiting for season four. I'm very much looking forward to it. That. Yeah, that'll be fun. Um, number three, which historical figure would you bring back and spend the day with? <laughs> um, I think that would. I think I'm going to say Mozart or Bach. Maybe Bach. Mm. Um, just because I really want to, I'd really want to sit down with them, and I'd I'd want to play music for them. I'd re- I I really want to play modern music for Bach, just to see if his head would explode. <laughs> <laughs> you could play Sigurd for Bach and see I, I, if his head explodes. <laughs> I am absolutely sure that Bach would love Sigurd. I think so too. Okay, four. Where would you like to travel to next? 
when we can. Um, yeah, you know, I think, ironically, um, ironically, I've been outside of the U.S. and I've seen more of Europe and Asia than I have the interior of the United States. And that's just by chance and just by my luck for having been able to travel to some of those places uh, for music work. Um, so, and I know that you love the Mountain West, so I'd like to go out to the Mountain West because you seem to think that I'm really going to love the Mountain West, like Utah, Arizona, that area, and Las Vegas, Nevada. So, uh, yeah, I would love to see that part of the United States. Good answer. <laughs> and it's true. I do think that you'll really like the Mountain West. Um, okay. Five. Who is your favorite composer? And I guess you can't say Bach because you already said Bach. <laughs> Well, if I can't say Bach because it is Bach, I will have to give a shout out to Hindemith, who not many people love, but for some reason I love Hindemith. I could listen to Hindemith all day. So <laughs> there you go. All right. And then number six, if we had the chance to bring back dinosaurs, should we? Yeah, that's that's an easy one. Um, I see no reason not to. I mean, of course, there's moral implications and you, you, you wouldn't want to, like, upset the ecosystem in some way. But if it can be done in a controlled way, uh, yeah, bring on the T-Rex. Wasn't that the plot of Jurassic Park, though? I feel like that didn't go well. Yeah. I mean, that's the impetus for this question. Oh, yeah, well, okay. Right. I guess there's the opportunity for it not to go well. But, uh, you know, hopefully it can be done well, you know, with, with any amount of... Uh, <laughs> If you take Hollywood out of the picture, you could probably you could probably achieve something decent. Okay, that's fair. If you take Hollywood out of the picture, I feel like that could be true in a lot of cases. Sure. Well, I think that's a great place to stop. Thank you so much for coming on and humoring me, and I will see you in the kitchen shortly. I guess, yeah, I'll see you in the kitchen, and I guess my, my theme music is going to play us out now. Oh, yeah, I forgot. We have to do a shout-out because the theme music for Doubler's Podcast was composed and programmed and played by the one and only Alex Ozelins. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, it was around 2006 for like a week. I thought I was going to write TV jingles. So that was, what you're listening to is the absolute culmination of my career as a uh, TV jingle artist. So take it away. See you later. <laughs>